Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. In my 27 years as a Victorian policewoman, I investigated everything from a stolen bicycle to a stolen life. Policing taught me a lot about human nature, which I explore in my podcasts with a variety of fascinating guests discussing the human side and impact of crime, not only on their lives, but mine as well. My podcasts are not suitable for children and some adults for that matter. If you find yourself affected by my subject matter, please contact Lifeline or any other support, service or person that you feel comfortable with. My guests provide their recollection of an event or incident, sharing their thoughts and their emotions, but it's theirs and not everyone will agree with them. I understand that and I hope you do too. Thank you. Inside this vault in one corner, and then at the other end is the is the eight black barrels, and we can see handcuffs. We can see a, like a knife set, uh, and things like some rubber gloves sort of been hastily removed on top of the barrels, and thought like okay, this is suddenly gone really pear shaped. With a lazy 36-plus years combined experience with both South Australia Police and Queensland Police, with a forensic background having attended a range of emergency incidents, examining major crime scenes, bombings, uh, profile serial killings and a myriad of suspicious deaths, organised crime gangs, etc., today's guest, Gordon Drake, was forced to leave Queensland Police Service purely because he'd turned 60. And that is the rules. Gordon loved his work and excelled in his field of forensic examinations. He was at the top of his game with so much knowledge and insight into forensic examinations. Just what a waste is that? (laughs) Gordon would return to Queensland Police Service at the drop of a hat. But the catch is that if after their first, after their forced retirement at 60, they wish to rejoin, they actually have to go back onto the front line. And I don't know about you, but I reckon a 60-year-old is never going to be able to outrun a fit or maybe even unfit 20-year-old, but they're the rules. Gordon and I started our respective policing careers in 1987 and we both acknowledge policing was so different back then. Crooks knew that we called the shots, so to speak, but It's done a full 360 now, it seems. The crooks treat police with disdain and utter contempt. 
Fancy watching a young kid high on, I don't know, whatever, speeding past you in a stolen car, maybe even giving you or probably even giving you the bird and you can't chase them. Gordon and I both agree that we'd struggle big time with those type of directions and instructions these days, not to chase them or whatever those instructions are. I could be being naive, but all it would take is a simple rule change to enable Queensland Police Service to keep people like Gordon with their extensive experience and knowledge and developing junior staff to just walk out the door. It just seems so wrong. In fact, in a way, it's got to be age discrimination, doesn't it? Anyway, is that age discrimination, do you reckon, Gordon? Well, uh, hello oh, and welcome. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Neryl. Thanks, thanks for the chat. Um, I, look, it, it would be age discrimination, but um, Queensland, being unique as Queensland is, uh, actually has an exemption. <laughs> they have their own exemption for police officers and specifically um, fire officers, fire brigade people, because they're subject to the same sort of crazy rule, but the fire brigade can yeah. stay till the 65. But for the fire brigade and the police in Queensland, they have a special exemption in the human rights laws that allow them to, to finish us at 60 and 65 respectively. So. It, but as I said initially, it does seem a waste, doesn't it? Like here you are at the at the top of your game, at the top of the tree, and just because of an age barrier, you've got to stop. And I just think about all those, as I said in the intro, I just think about all those junior members that could learn so much. Like even if, let's say, you weren't operational, but you could still mentor them. And I just think it's a, a terrible waste. But as I keep saying... Rules are the rules. Yes. Anyway, so look, thank you uh, very much for joining us today, Gordon, um, on this very, very cold and dreary day in Melbourne. Uh, what's it like? Where are you? Are you Queensland? I'm on the Gold Coast in Queensland, and it's a beautiful day here. In fact, I've just taken a Okay, that's enough. <laughs> yeah, that's enough. Thank you. <laughs> well... We're freezing our bits off here. That's bits, uh, and it's a and it's about oh, seven degrees, I think, at the moment. So, um, yeah, oh, the Gold Coast—that'd uh, be beautiful. How long have you been up there? Uh, we came here in the middle of nineteen ninety nine. I moved up from Saint Paul, so yeah. June, June of 19, June of nineteen ninety nine. Left South Australia and moved up here. So. Okay, okay. Uh, yeah, I just I couldn't leave Melbourne. I I like those four the four seasons in one day. You just never know. You've got to have a jumper. Uh, I was going to say a pair of bikinis, but it's a long <laughs> a long time since I've worn them. <laughs> anyway, uh, again, thanks for joining us, uh, Gordon. So as I mentioned in my introduction. You've been involved in many high-profile investigations, including serial killings, bombings, suspicious deaths and organised crime, just to name a few. Uh, I know that you could talk about it underwater and probably get asked it a million times, but many of my listeners wouldn't have heard about your involvement with the Snowtown murders. Uh, they called them the body in the barrels um, or they may not even be aware of that investigation. So I know you talk about this ad nauseum, but would you mind giving us a quick pricey of that investigation and your involvement? Because that is that is probably one of the more most high-profile murder investigations in Australia, I would think. Yes, I, I'd say it probably is one of, one of the biggest. I think it might still be Australia's largest serial killings. I think it, it trumps the um, 
um, the Ivan Malat ones as well, I think, on sheer numbers. But that was um, that was a job completely by accident. Was the, the job was never supposed to have been finding bodies. So and there's a number of people that actually have never heard of it see, because of the showing my age now that um, many people have never <laughs> never really heard of, of the Snowtown murders because it was back in 1999 in May, 20th of May, um, we were at a bank in, in Snowtown, a, a little country town in South Australia, about, about an hour and a half north of Adelaide. Um, lovely little town, famous for pretty much nothing at, at the time. Um, rural farmland surrounding it. I used to have a railway siding and those sorts of things. A typical, I suppose, a, a, the, the quintessential um, outback country town. For That's not fully outback, you know, it's a, it's a country town in South Australia. Just off the main highway, uh, they've got a bypass in now. So, um, we had a series in South Australia, a series of people went missing over, uh, over a period of years. Uh, the first one, it turned out, I think it was 1995, 91 even. Um, it's so long, it's even long Um But yeah, we had a series of, <laughs> it turned out in the end, we ended up with um, 14 missing people were all murdered by a, a little gang of, of sort of three people. Um, and they did have a fourth one, a young lad they were trying to sort of encourage and get involved along towards the end as well. But um, yeah, so we we found uh, we found most of those bodies in barrels. They were, they were dismembered and put into um, eight barrels in, inside an old disused bank bank vault at Snowtown. So that's pretty much the gist of the thing. Do you want any more information on that? I feel free. Oh. The listeners, the listeners could never get enough of. Oh, this sounds terrible, doesn't it, Gordon? <laughs> but the listeners could never get enough of. Like these are just they're fascinating in one way, but from an investigation point of view, a, a terrible thing to say. But these sort of jobs, um, they are something that a police person. They're just. They're great to be involved in because of um, the challenges. Like one murder uh, in a barrel would be difficult enough, but it's hard to fathom 14 separate victims and how, like how long did they get the people that were the offenders, how long did they get away with it before, you know, somebody... um, made a report or they started digging and finding, literally digging and finding what was going on? Well, it's, a, it's, it's sort of a, f- a funny thing in, a, in, a, in not so not funny, but funny, unusual. Um, the the whole job came from a fellow who I uh, I used to work with in uniform many, many years ago. I, when I first graduated, you know, you do general duties and patrol work and stuff. And I got stationed at um, Parra Hills Police Station that existed back, back then in 19... 19- Late, late 80s, 87, and I was working with a fellow called um, called Greg Stone. Um, we spent a few shifts working together in uniform. Eventually, we went our separate ways in, in our careers, and he he ended up at the CLB office at Elizabeth, and he picked up a couple of a missing person file and went to and did some you know, preliminary investigations with that, as police do, trying to find these people. And I. I don't think he didn't find the person, but eventually should have, you know, put it to rest. No further information. You know, file pending, pending something else, and then he got another one a few months or so later, uh, and he he ended up with two or three of these, and he realised he was talking to the same people as he was doing his inquiries. He was coming across a number of similarities. He thought, well, why am I talking to the same people here? So he started mm-hmm. digging a bit deeper, and uh, good detective work. 
And he thought, there's something in this. These people, this is too coincidental that all these people, you know, they all work, in, work and operate in the same circles of friends. And he, so he went to his bosses and said, I think you know, there's some, something weird going on here. So as bosses do with perhaps with junior, or did back then with junior detectives, you know, Stoney, you're a detective. It's a missing person. Move on. They're adults. You know, <laughs> there's nothing to see here. Keep going. But he, he wouldn't let it go. He was like a you know, dog with a bone and he, he just kept, plugging away, thought, no, it's not right. So in between his other files, of course, he's, he's trying to investigate these other things. Um, mm. And eventually he must have badgered his bosses to the point where they said, look, if you think there's something in it, go take it to major crime, like the homicide people, and you know, see what they think. And this is this is his version. This is what he's told me. So he's gone up to, into Adelaide. He's gone to the major crime people. And he, he told me at the time he suspected that the plan was that his bosses would then, you know, He'd come back with his tail between his legs, terribly embarrassed that the major crime squad have said, you're an idiot, you know, go away, little boy, <laughs> run away. But instead, they went, you know what, we, we can see your point. He must have put a good, you know, good file together. And they said, we can see what you're talking about. And from there, they started to put some work in from the major crime area. And that led to some surveillance and phone taps and those sorts of things. And then by the time we've got to May of, uh, pretty much you know, April and May of, uh, of 1999, um, they have got to, surveillance who have followed their prime suspect to this house at Snowtown, just a normal everyday sort of acreage type property in the hardship of in the heart of heart of the township there, and um, so that's when I got involved. I got a phone call. I was actually because I was at that stage I was working out of Cadena on the York Peninsula. That was my forensic area to look after. I had the whole York Peninsula, which is, for those people who are not familiar with South Australia, it's like a little boot-shaped part. It almost looks a little bit like Italy in the on the map. The little boot part of South Australia. So I'm living and working over there, and I've We've been relieving on a particular day. I'm across at um, at New Ripta. I'm on my way to New Ripta over towards the Brosha Valley because my opposite number over there was on leave and they had a, a job over there. So I went across to, to look at the remains of a vehicle that had been dumped at the side of the road. So I'm across there. Lovely sunny day it was. I still remember it. And the phone rang and I said, oh, yeah, it was me. And they said, are you available to go to Snowtown for, you know, for a job? And I said, sure, you know, I can do that. And they said, the problem is we had two people teed up to come from Adelaide from the, the, the physical evidence section there. And they said, we can, we were going to send them up today. It was all arranged. We got the tow truck organised as detectives and this, you know, the forensic team was set. But the forensic team got called out to, the night before um, to a murder. So they were no longer, no longer available. But they did have a relatively junior girl, a lady, that they could send up if I was available to sort of assist and supervisor. So I said, sure. So 11 o'clock was the meeting time. By the time I got back, I think it was about quarter past 11 when I got into the, the Snowtown Police Station. Walked in and there was the, uh, Bronwyn and the other detectives and stuff. And they said, do you know about this job? I said, not really. And they said, well, hand me a piece of paper. The bottom half of the bit of paper had a whole list of um, items on it. Lounge suites, TV cabinets and TVs and stuff like that. And on the top half, there was five or six, eight, eight or more names. And they said, all those people on the top of the list are missing people. All the stuff at the bottom of the list is property we know is missing from their houses. We know that our suspects have been followed to this address across the road here at Snowtown. We need to go over there, take some photographs, take a video of the inside and outside of the house, and we know there's a vehicle there that the suspect has driven. 
uh, driven and left at that address. So we're going to seize that and the tow truck is out the front. So we're going to take the, take this, the car on the tow truck and we just want to record everything and in case, you know, down the track, we need to know what's going on with that. And they said, we can we have the video and the photos and then if anyone else says, oh, you know, uncle or auntie so-and-so has missed, this is missing from the house as well, they can look at those photos and see if that property is at this address. So the main focus was just to go and take, just a, just a photo job, just go and take some photos, take some video, just very easy you know, from a forensic point of view. In, in and out, in and out. Yeah, yeah pretty much. No yeah. And I, I yep. remember ringing my wife at the time and saying, look, I'm stuck at this job at Snowtown. I won't be home for lunch. I'll probably be, I said, I reckon I'll be late home for lunch. <laughs> I'll see you about two o'clock. Yeah, right. I said, yeah. What year? Well, what year? <laughs> I wasn't far out. It was two o'clock. It was just the following morning. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so yeah. I, I I rang her and said, "No, this is what's happening." So we went we went across and started doing the job, and they're talking to the occupant of this house and just having a chat. And he's not a suspect at this stage; they didn't really know what his involvement was. Um, he lived there with his his wife and his children, and, and he said, "Yeah," he said, "Bunting has his has his car." So I'm just doing my thing, taking my pictures and videos, and Bronwyn's doing notes and doing that sort of stuff. Because at this stage, I've also given notice that I'm leaving Saypole, and I've told them I'm already moving to Queensland because it's the 20th of May. And I've left pretty much about the 18th of June, I think it was my last official day. So yep. I'm, I've given them notice I'm finishing up. So, um, yeah, Bron was doing, she's doing most of the notes and reporting on it. And like I said, it's, it was a straight in, straight out job until the detectives called us across and said, you won't believe what he's just told us. And what do you mean? They said, well, he's just told us that Bunting has come here with this, with some barrels in the back of this four-wheel drive that they were interested in. Um, and they're now over at the old state bank. I went, oh, okay. So we down tools immediately and went to the old state bank, drove around, and as police do, you think you know where you're going. We just followed the detectives, and they'd gone to what turned out to be the old ANZ bank to start with. Of course, the key didn't work, because this fellow gave him a key, and they said, how do we get in? He said, well, I've got to give you the key. So he pulled a bunch of keys out of his pocket and took a key off and said, that's the side door. So they said, so I'll come with you. They said, no, no, you better stay here. So he's wandered. We've gone over there. Some little elderly lady was walking along the street, could see these you know, these grown men looking a little bit confused and <laughs> befuddled at the side street. And she's going, can I help you? And they're going, willing to stay. Oh, no, this one, dear, around the corner. So poor old Snow Town, like many towns in Australia, and the whole town was sort of in decline at that stage. It's going backwards. Mm. They're closing banks mm. left, right, center. So we've gone around to the, the correct state bank, walked and got around to the side door, and we could smell what we thought was cannabis. And that turned out to be just a you know, just a, pipe, a plant in the garden outside the manager's house because they still had mm-hmm. the manager's residence was attached to the bank, and there was a, a lady who was not involved in this at all was just renting this renting this house um, with the manager's residence, and the fellow across the road he was renting the old the old bank, and as part of that he, he had access to the bank vault uh, as well as the manager's office and those sorts of things. So we've gone in with the key. I've got the video running walking through there's no smell there's nothing really suspicious other than you know you can see all these computer bits and um, broken dismantled uh, um, video recorders and computer bits and pieces because this is what this what this fellow at the house did he was repairing for a couple of electrical shops nearby he was repairing you know, computers and doing warranty work and tvs and things so he needed he was using the, the, the old bank space for that sort of thing so we've gone in had a look around and then we, oh, we can't get into the vault. The, the bank vault itself was was closed and locked. I'd felt the tumbler that was just didn't feel like it was connected, but it still had a big handle on a, a fairly large keyhole. And I said, oh, and that. so detectives 
went off and scurried away to do things to talk about thermal lances and you know, cutting holes in it. And I thought, well, the last thing we want is thermal lances generate tre- tremendous heat, flames and smoke. And it was just, I thought, no, that's, that is the, the very last thing we're going to do. So they all went off to try and make some inquiries about how we might get a safe cracker to come and, and help us get into the safe. So by now, it's now sort of lunchtime-ish. I haven't had lunch. I'm getting hungry. Bronwyn, she's got her lunch with her. Um, because she knew she was coming up to for the day, so I walked back and I said, "We better before we do too much more. We better fingerprint the fingerprint the vault or the safe door." So because this job didn't involve fingerprinting, she didn't bring a fingerprint kit with her from Adelaide. So mine was still in the car. So my car was across the road. So I've gone back, walked out of the bank, back over the cross over the railway line, walked across the embankments and to the house where the local police officers uh, in the car with. The occupant of the house, and they said, "You know, how's he getting on?" I said, "Oh, we've got in. We're getting so far, but we can't get into the vault." And he said, "Oh," and he leans across. He said, "I oh, said, now you want to get in?" He said, "You don't. You just need a piece of wire." He said, "The, the combination tumbler thing doesn't work." Because yeah, I figured that. <laughs> and I said, "Well, I better find a bit of wire." And he said, "I'll get you some." So he's jumped out of the car and he's taken me to the side of his house. And he's got this giant, great big roll of number eight fencing wire that you know, most farmers would have. Um, it's this big roll. It's like a meter high and it's a meter wide. Um, so he cuts me off this length of wire, bends it up at right angles and puts a little hook in the end of it. And he said, it's like, so it looks like a little divining rod. And he hands it, he said, do you want me to come? I said, no, no, you better not. You better not come with me. You stay here. So I remember going back over, walking back. I got my car, drove back over. And um, I've got the thing for kit ready. And I've walked into the bank. And at this stage, there's just Bronwyn there. And there's, there's Greg Stone was lurking around. I said, oh, I've got the key. And I've held up this piece of wire. And the look they gave me was just, you know, well, you can imagine. Priceless. Yeah, it was that, yeah, you, you're an idiot, you know. You're <laughs> we, idiot. we knew you were stupid, yeah. but now you're really an idiot. <laughs> but now it's confirmed. That's right, yeah. So I thought, yeah. well, and the local copper had offered to go down to the bakery. He was going to go and get me a, a pie or something. Like that. He was going to buy me something at the bakery. He was going to drop it back off on his way back. I so said, that was awesome. So while I had a couple of minutes to kill, um, I'm on the floor and I thought, well, I'll put, put this piece of wire into the keyhole and um, just like the document had said, <clears throat> so I'm starting to fiddle around. I could see the tumblers because the keyhole was really, really quite large. So I could see the tumblers. I'm just fiddling around with it. And I've got my hand on the like the lever handle. And I think nobody's more surprised than me. When my hand just fell on the weight of the handle, it just it opened. I went, hey, we're in. And we're kind of, so complete shock and awe across everybody's face. The idiots come back with a piece of wire and he actually cracked into a safe. <laughs> Who would have thought? <laughs> Um, so then we opened the door and I said, hang on, I'll get the video. So I've got the video running. Um, we've opened the door and met with a, just a, a sheet of black plastic, completely sealed, sticky tape all around the door, all four top, bottom sides, the whole lot, just a big sheet of plastic with a vertical slit that's also taped up. So we thought, oh, it is. It, it's, we thought it was going to be hydroponics crop all the way along. We think that's what it is. It's, it's the black plastic you find in many... Uh, many places. Oh, yeah. yeah. The, yes. you know, white on one side, heavy duty, sort of black on the other. So we're thinking. Dead giveaway. Yeah, we're thinking. Yep. Yep, it's, Pardon the pun. it's dope. Mm. Yeah, it's dope. Yeah. So then um, Greg then peels off, the, peels off the sticky tape on the centre part, which is obviously the, the intended entry. And um, pretty much straight away, we get hit with the smell. I thought, no, it's not dope. And then we can, with a torch, we can shine the torch in through the slot and the video camera. You can actually see the heap of barrels. Standing up on its end is a green lounge suite, which was on the, one of the items on the list. Um, oh, yeah. So we found at least one of the items on that list. We, I remember seeing the lounge suite. Thinking, that's, a, that's a big item. So they've got that standing up there. The lounge suite's on its end. There's a couple of other matching chairs in there as well. So the whole lounge suite's inside this um, inside this vault. 
in one corner, and then at the other end is the is the eight black barrels. And we can see handcuffs. We can see a, like a knife set uh, and things on like some rubber gloves, sort of been hastily removed on in, on top of the barrels. And thought, okay, this is this is suddenly gone really pear shaped. Um, oh my goodness! Um, yeah. Poor Bronwyn there is going. Oh, I've never. She spent most of the afternoon um, worried, uh, understandably, that she'd never really done a murder on her own. This was what she was going to have to report on. So she's suddenly gone from zero to you know, six Boy. or more bodies in the space of an hour. <clears throat> Certainly within the space of a couple of hours. So I said, you know, yeah. you'll be fine. We'll work through this and we'll get it done. So straight on the phone, as you do, you ring Adelaide, you ring, yeah, ring Adelaide the office back and say, you sold us a pump. Thanks very much. I've now got this job. And then detectives obviously have gone and done the same thing. They've rung up their higher, higher bosses. Mm. Mm. So a few hours later, we've got an army of people that have come up, uh, forensic people, photographic people, um, detectives from major crime have all turned up. And then there's the debate. The debate was happening um, about, we don't even know what we're dealing with yet. We need to get those barrels open. We need to see what's in there. Uh, and on top of the lounge suite, <coughs> I'd seen... Uh, four, four drums of, um, of hydrochloric acid. And I thought, um, that's interesting. So we rang the, somebody rang the chemist in Adelaide and said, look, what sort of risk is this going to be? And they said, well, it's not, it's not going to you know, eat your skin as such, but it's, it, you know, the, the vapors and the fumes from that could be quite dangerous because it, it's, it's essentially chlorine. It's just you know, liquid chlorine, basically, for anyone who's not, not chemis- chemically minded. So <clears throat> there's these drums of, of chlorine bleach type stuff. Uh, I think in hindsight, the offenders probably thought it was going to be dissolving their body parts. Yeah, they wanted yeah. something you know, stronger, but that's probably like a gun by at Bunnings or wherever. So, mm. <clears throat> excuse me, they, um, they said, you know, you probably need to take some respiratory protection in there. So I'd done, I'd spent, before I joined the police, I'd spent a number of years um, as a volunteer firefighter in the country fire service in South Australia. So I'd had, um, I had some training and experience with using uh, breathing apparatus that the fire brigade, you know, the tank on your back and the mask over your face. So I said to the, one of my local detectives, um, if you can get me some breathing apparatus from the local volunteer fire station, um, I can use it. So he said, oh, I'll see what I can do. So, cause he was, you know, he'd been a long time detective in the country. He was very well connected with people around town. So he, he found the, the boss of the local fire brigade and said, look, I need to borrow some breathing apparatus. I can't tell you why. <laughs> I can't tell you when, but I can tell you that I've got someone who knows how to use it, so we don't need you to come with us, um, and we'll return it in good condition. Um, mm-hmm. Can you help me? And he went, sure, I'll do that. So he hands him this thing. So Rick Day's come back with this, this breathing apparatus kit. So I've then put it on, got ready, and then I've gone in and um, – open, unscrewed the tops of the barrels to actually have a look at what's inside. So, And doing that, and, uh, people outside are, are trying to see if there's a, a vapour, any sort of smells coming out that are likely to be harmful. Uh, as it turned out, nothing. there was nothing terribly harmful, so we we worked out pretty quickly we could probably go in without breathing apparatus. But I kept that on because of the, the smell and the, the absolute stench that was in there. Um, I kept that on just for my own comfort until I ran out of air. So I, I just kept going and then um, once the air run out, I, no choice. Just like everyone else, we had to just deal with the deal with the smells. Can Can I go back just a, a minute there, mm-hmm. Gordon? You said that when you went in there after you've got through the black plastic, that there was this uh, terrible smell. Did you immediately believe that that smell was a dead body, or 
like did you know immediately what it was? Because at this stage you haven't actually, um, you don't actually know there's a, a body in that barrel, do you? You may assume but you don't know. Would that be right? That's right, yes. We, we, we had barrels, we had saws, we had knives, we had handcuffs and some rubber gloves, but we actually didn't know what was in those barrels. But the smell was a pretty good giveaway. There was something very dead in that room. So yeah. once you've once you've smelt, like, I guess decomposing oh, yeah. flesh, it's, yes. it, it's a smell you never forget, and that had that distinct smell about it. I remember looking at the video um, days later, and then you know Greg's put his head back out and he's gone, "Oh, it's it's, it's not dope." Uh, he knew the smell was completely different. So yeah, again, we knew we had aim so, body. Or okay, so so I interrupted. So you've got you've take you've run out of air. You've taken off uh, your breathing apparatus, and what happens then? Uh, and then we just started to process each barrel one at a time. We we, we hatched a plan once the, the guys from Adelaide and the, the rest of the support team have, have arrived. We said, well, we label all the barrels up A through to F, um, and then we made note of what was in each one, like where they were within the within the vault, you know, their positioning, so you know, a little mud map. And of course, Bronwyn's doing most of the notes on this because she's going to be reporting on it. <laughs> poor Bronwyn talked oh, about Poor Bronwyn, yeah. God. Yeah, yeah, poor Bronwyn. <laughs> in at the deep end. Oh, very much so, yeah. Um, I really felt for it because she hasn't, hasn't travelled very well ever since then. Um, she's out of the job, so it's that's one of my one of my pet gripes with the with the with Sapolet because I, I rang the following day and said, look, she was quite you know, quite overawed by it, by it all. Keep an eye on her. So they went, yep, no worries. So what are they going to do? Go for another three or four days straight working at all these other scenes. I mean, there the uh, the secondary scenes where these people are being abducted from yeah. and where the torture and stuff had happened. Yeah, so yeah. You know, mentally, it didn't it didn't do her any good whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So. So, so Gordon, when you let's just we don't need to go through the six barrels, mm-hmm. but can you tell us, uh, sort of step by step, uh, what happens when, uh, how you open the barrel, what you see or what you smell, mm-hmm. uh, what what do you do when you realise it's a body? Like, is there body parts in there? Can you just take us through that? Oh, I remember. Well, I remember having several of them. Oh. Um, I can't tell you which barrel was which anymore without looking at my notes and stuff. But yeah, but yeah I opened the lid and I remember one was um, one had sort of soil and garbage bags in it as well. But I could see uh, like a slightly mummified um, foot was sort of sticking up near the top. I thought, okay, that's that's a, that's a human foot. Um, and I said to the guys outside, I said, this has been exhumed from somewhere because it had soil all over it. It had previous, uh, clearly had pre- previously been buried in soil and was now inside this barrel. <clears throat> so there was a couple like that, and then you could see um, another one. You could see a torso that was still wearing some jeans, and there was a leather belt on the jeans. It was sort of folded up inside. So it was, uh, if you can imagine, I guess, somebody bending over and then being just shoved into a barrel. Um, I could see the, the yep. back of their belt, that sort of thing. Um, yep. Another one was pretty much full of liquid and floating on the top of the liquid, and that's the one that had most of the the, um, the hydrochloric acid in it, was the um, was like a just a bare leg, like a, a, a fairly plump calf, human calf and foot. And I thought, okay. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. 
To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Okay, so that's the sort of stuff we're dealing with. So we had some that were full of liquid, some that were semi-full of liquid, and some that were appeared to be quite dry. So it wasn't practical. We didn't have the space or the, the manpower to do them then. So we said, we've got to get these to the mortuary where we can you know, document them all properly, uh, and they can be examined you know, by a forensic uh, pathologist. So again, the local detective um, went back, drove back to Kadena an hour or so, picked up the, the station trailer, which was a cage trailer, brought it back, and then uh, about well, probably about midnight, one o'clock in the morning, we've then inside the, the vault was a little tiny little knocked knocked down runabout, uh, really worn out. Um, I call it a sack truck, little trolley thing that we used for moving furniture and sort of stuff. So there was one of those inside the inside the vault. So we ended up using that to take these barrels out through the front of the bank. Out across the footpath into the load that manhandled them into the um, into the trailer, and then he had to drive it straight to Adelaide that night. And they got checked in at uh, two o'clock in the morning or something. Left at the mortuary where the team the following day were going to start examining them out, documenting what was in what. And some had you know one or two torsos and extra legs and arm, not enough arms and legs. So it was a bit of a Meccano set for them as they were trying to piece it all together. And they they did you know, they got all, got it all done, looking at tattoos and things like that that are still. Even though the decomposition's occurring, the tattoos and stuff are often still visible. So those are the things they used to identify a lot of the people with, um, as well as you know, DNA in the end. But they um, they did all that stuff, and then uh, we had to go on. The, the, we went back the following day. We we did eventually just sort of shut the scene down because we were just you know, exhausted by then. We've manhandled all this stuff, and we made the copious notes. Your brains just about to explode from all this information overload you're thinking trying to do everything in the, in the right order not trying to mess it all up because as you remember you know if you do something out of sequence it might damage your evidence in the next bit so you've got to be conscious that you know, whatever you do we need to make sure we, we're doing it all in the right sequence and what we do now is not going to affect someone later this afternoon or tomorrow or whatever it might be yeah, so yeah. it was a, a big joint effort on everybody's part and then the following day um We've got you know, other people from Adelaide have come up and they've gone to process the whole 
the rest of the stuff in the vault, which was you know, garbage bags full of clothes and possessions and bits and pieces. Um, we found a, there was a notebook inside the, the doorway, which I, I forgot about the first part. Once we opened the um, I opened the vault because the the doors are so thick; they're about a foot thick, so they're thirty odd, roughly thirty odd uh, centimeters mm. uh, deep. We've got um, a very large door frame. So in the door frame, there was a um, there was a notebook, like a, a school exercise book, one of those little yeah. uh, not A4 one, but that small smaller size, very common with primary schools in particular, and that had a list of names in it. And some of those names had been crossed out and others were still going. So I believe that they were going to be, you know, they were future victims. Um, just another. God, they were next. Yeah, it was a hit, the next it, it was a hit list of yeah. sorts, yeah. Oh, God. It was a, okay. There was a pair of sand shoes there as well that, and a wallet um, for a name we didn't know about. But when we checked, he was the late, he was the victim. He was killed the night before we were there. I think it was the night before. Oh. Um, yeah, he was the very last victim. Um, he'd been lured there. Um, on the on the, the guys to um, to buy a, a computer, a second-hand computer. So he was driven up there, and they lured him in there, and then they tortured them, and, and then they did the cutting up on the floor because there was all this extra black plastic and stuff on the floor in there. And we'd even felt when we sat on the floor to, you know, to have lunch and do some notes, we thought that the carpet tiles were a bit damp. So remember, we lifted a couple of carpet tiles and did a, a combo test, like a test for blood. Uh, it came back negative, but... They were obviously hosing down, down the, the blood and stuff and making the carpet wet as they cleaned up after themselves. So, Gordon, why were these people murdered and by who? It was pretty much greed in the end. It started off as what they would consider community service. They were trying to rid the world of people they believe were pedophiles, were homosexual or, you know, um, I guess transgender sort of people that we would call today. So anyone who was not quite what they would consider normal, anyone who had different sexual orientation or you know, strange views. And some of this was completely wrong. You know, they were, they were targeting people that they, they believe were you know, pedophiles and there was never any evidence of this. Um, oh. So, but in, in their mind, they said, no, this person's, you know, they were rock spiders. They had names for them like that. And they said, no, this one's going to go. Yeah. So they had like a kill list. And now I think at some point, probably fairly early on, they realized that they're still getting paid um, Centrelink money. Most of these people were, and that was the, their target group. Was a lot of these people were on the fringes of society. They'd been, um, for whatever reason, were uh, estranged from a lot of their families. Almost, and that sort of dis- stuff. almost discarded by the community. Yeah, yeah, didn't have a lot of friends as such, or associated only with themselves and their own, all the yep. other victims. Yep. So it was a fairly small group um, in the northern suburbs of Adelaide, mostly, and um, and their families didn't always, you know speak to them regularly. So if they hadn't been heard from in you know, three or four or six months, that wasn't unusual for the family. That didn't yeah. didn't ring any bells or didn't start alarming anyone. So once they realised that this was happening and they worked out they could actually get their Centrelink money. So Centrelink kept keep paying money. Uh, even though they're a missing person, the money still goes into the bank. So then they started getting, uh, they were torturing them to get their PIN numbers and so, so forth. Oh, and then they would yeah. then go to ATMs and get money out. And actually, one of them actually went on holiday. At one point, there was a public appeal during the whole thing. Uh, this is before I got involved, but there was a public appeal for this missing woman, and someone rang the missing persons bureau in Adelaide and said, "Hey, um, I know um, yeah, she's not she's not really missing. She's actually in Tasmania on holiday. She just doesn't want her family to know, and she's you know, having a bit of a break." So they did some checks on the bank records, and sure enough, there's transactions in Tasmania. What we what we know now 
is that those transactions were being done by their offender, who was the person who rung and said, oh, she's actually in Tasmania. Um, and it was just true office and no one at the, at the missing person bureau you know, checked more than just to say, okay, we did this. Because these people are adults. So with adult missing people, the, the system certainly back then was that a, you know, a lesser inquiry is made really because they're, they're seen to be probably able to look after themselves and, and that sort of thing. Yeah. And that's the oh, the the skill, I suppose, of your friend uh, who was the initial person where he mm. thought some. What was the, your friend's name? Oh, Sorry, your mate. Greg Stone. Yeah. Greg. Greg yeah. yeah. So that's why people like Greg are so good at what they do, mm. because um, having worked at missing persons, they are really challenging investigations. Because, as you just alluded to, there, you'd. A lot of people go missing because for all sorts of reasons, uh, you know, that they may have um, had a, a breakup, they might need to, um, I don't know, it might be somebody um, trying to get away and uh, uh, what do you call it, like just finding somewhere to just get themselves together, like going to a refuge. They might, all, they might want to go missing. Yes. But the, the, but the skill is... Um, to identify is this a crime or is this just somebody wanting, you know, a bit of space. And and also your mate Greg, he obviously had that gut feeling that so many police have, I would think the majority of police have, where something doesn't feel right. And it was through Greg's, correct me if I'm wrong here, but it's through Greg's gut feeling and a, a couple of um, uh pieces of information that were actually starting to um, uh, look like there is something very wrong here. And it was only through Greg, obviously, that this was discovered. That, that's always been my understanding of it. Yes, he, it was, he, he told me that on the day he was explaining. He said, I'm, he, in, in a sort of a weird, and this will sound perhaps sick for, to some people, but you'll understand this, ex-police. Yeah. He, he was feeling almost pleased that we'd found something substantial um, you know, bodies oh, yeah. because yeah. it completely vindicated him and he, he was basically going to have the last laugh on certainly his senior bosses at the local CIB and all the yeah. work that had gone in um, that he put into it, putting the files together, it, it basically justified all of those things and he said, oh, I was right all along. And you said, oh, it's, 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 it's your gut. You know, always trust your gut as a copper. Yeah, that's true. And and so um, there's a couple of other questions I want to ask, but so who was it? Uh, were they a group of uh, friends that had, had committed these murders or, like, do you know who they were and how they knew one another? And, how, like, were they men, women? Oh, they're, no, they're, they're all men. Um, John Bunting was the main man. He, he, was, uh, he was the main, main person. He lived at, uh, I think, Salisbury North at, at the end, the main part, because um, all, these, all these people lived in the sort of the Salisbury, Elizabeth areas, the northern suburbs of Adelaide. Weirdly enough, the areas I grew up in, Salisbury North, the actual house where they buried, originally buried some of the people, um, was in my early patrol district. <laughs> so, part of the Parry Hills patrol district way back then. I think, don't think Parry Hills even exist anymore as a, as a police station. Um, so, you've got John Bunting. Um, we've got Wagner was the other one. was the, um, And then we've also got um, a third one whose name just escapes me at the moment. But, yeah, so there was three men, were there? Yeah, were there the probably three, three men. There was a fourth one. It was a young lad. Um, his surname was Vasakis. It could be misspelled like V-S, something rather. Yep. He, um, he managed to get 
himself tangled up in them. And he was sort of fe- fearful that he was going to be the next victim because he had a terrible drug problem and was mm. pretty much you know, being abused by them um, for you know, to assist them to, to help with these things. And I think he was the one who led the, the last victim up there because they, they were mates, similar ages, early 20s, that sort of stuff, late teens, early 20s. Um, yeah, the, the Do you know if the, the offenders ever confessed or was it just the overwhelming evidence that you had? I don't. No, I don't think they've ever confessed. Um, oh, okay. I don't believe they ever got a confession from them. Um, we did get, I think the Sarkis did become a Crown Witness. He, he's, okay. I think, in protective custody or he's, he can, and his identity changed and those sorts of things to protect him. Mm. Um, mm. So he assisted with some of it, but the evidence was you know, fairly compelling. They found property at their houses and stuff, and there was when they tracked through some of the transactions, there's even CCTV footage at a, a service station of one of, I think it's Bunting, going to the ATM actually using one of the, one of the dead people's um, ATM cards to draw money out. God. Actually, we, okay. you know, those sorts of things were pretty damning. And of course, we had they had surveillance on them for a little while, um, and they got they were watching them do some of these things. I don't know if they actually saw them transfer, transferring money, but we had to keep the the challenge at Snowtown was that the bank, the old state bank, was actually literally on the opposite corner to the local pub. So while this is happening um, around about tea time, the pub's now getting you know, a number of people starting to turn up, regular patrons. So mm. we're trying to keep a low profile without drawing attention to the all the people in the Good park. luck with that. Yeah, well, they, they did pretty well because we, we okay. worked our, ourselves inside and we were keeping only a few cars like out the front to, to try and make it look less suspicious. But we're right in the corner, so we, we can't move all these barrels and things out until the pub closes. And now luckily back then the pub was generally closing about 10 o'clock, so we just waited. When eventually the pub closed, the town was sort of in darkness. It was like a ghost town, and that's when yeah. we could then start moving these things out because the major crime people had decided we are going to put the surveillance back on to our, to our suspects because when this story breaks, we want to watch and, and you know, oh, know yeah. where they're going. Yes. So that meant you know late-night phone calls to surveillance operatives, getting them out of bed and stuff and get ready. You're going to be on this from you know, from now. Get, get yourself down yeah. to these various locations. Um, and we had to keep a media, media ban on it uh, until you know, the following day. So I think it was by the time the news had broken and it, it somehow it, it did break sort of around dawn, I think, but the surveillance was in place and they saw these, some of these people apparently went off and were dumping stuff in you know, industrial bins and stuff at shopping centres and bits and pieces. Oh, so they all become secondary scenes you know, for forensic and for police to get, get involved in. But you know, we yeah. were lucky to be able to, I guess, stall the investigation long enough or stall the media release long yeah, enough to, yeah. to get ourselves in position to get ready yeah. for these things. So yeah, it's important. Mm. Yeah, I, I was thinking to myself as you're telling me, I'm thinking to myself, a small, and I imagine Snowtown is a small town. Do you know the population of Snowtown, like roughly? Uh, it, it's a is it a one horse town? Is, is yeah, along those sort of lines? Much. I mean, it had a it had a like a district primary school where people the kids would come to. But I, I would I honestly would guess I think at the time this happened, I'd be surprised if the population was greater than about seven hundred. 300, okay. 300 what I would say, but you know, the surrounding area collectively might be 700 people. Yeah, because my point being that in a small country town like Snowtown obviously is or was, mm-hmm. uh, you don't have to do much for the people to start talking. And I was thinking to myself, 
I wonder how many people were starting to watch and thinking, you know, like standing, but like you wouldn't put the crime scene tape out, I imagine, no. because that just, uh, it's like bees to a honeypot, isn't it? And, That's right. So, and, and it was obviously inside the bank. So, uh, but yeah, I was thinking, God, how did you keep the media and the observers away, but just uh, under the cover of darkness? Yeah, it was fortunate, I guess, the time of the day it all happened because we, we and we were inside. It wasn't an outdoor scene. We could, yeah. we could go through the back, yeah. the back door, the side entrance, um, and there was a big high, there was a big high fence, like a six, I was six or seven foot tall colourable fence at the very front, which provided privacy for the people in the, the old manager's house. Uh, it also gave us a great privacy because we could work behind there. We could bring vehicles and things into the backyard of the house and nobody would know what we were doing. Um, so it was only until we opened the front doors and then once the, once the news broke, there was satellite news crews came with satellite dishes oh, the whole lot. I remember there, were, there was even some yeah. Japanese people in the end by the time they all packed up. The international interest from it. Um, oh, yeah, the yeah. road was just almost jammed full with well, opposite side of the road was jammed full with media outlets and mm-hmm. all this stuff. Hey, Gordon, the, the barrels mm-hmm. were they what we would assume, uh, what we would see these days as wine barrels? Is that what they were? A wine well, barrel? These, these were actually olive, they were used as plastic barrels. Um, they, they were originally they had olives in them, they were. Um, sort of reused olive barrels. So they're um, they're not like a forty-four gallon drum. They were plastic. Or these ones were all black. But uh, more more recently, you'll probably see that exactly the same style of barrel is often a bright blue colour with a black lid. I know the plastic ones. Yeah. yeah. So I, they they might use them in the wine industry, but they weren't wine barrels in the in the traditional sense. Oh, I think these these originally had some of them, one of them was labelled like olive barrels and stuff, and they'd come from a, a surplus supply place in Adelaide. Okay. And did they have a lid on them? Yes. Yeah, they have um, okay. They have like a screw-on ring and that holds on. There's a push-in lid that oh, fits yes. in the top. Yep. So there's a, a rubber yep. seal, push the lid in, and then you basically hold that little inserted lid on with a screw-top screw top ring. So those ones. And, and Gordon, this is obviously a huge job in a huge investigation in anyone's career. Mm. Um, how... Can you remember how you felt knowing what you were finding in every barrel, like the fact that the bodies had obviously been um, uh, dismembered? Did it make you feel, I mean, I think poor Bronwyn, Mm. um, obviously it affected her, but there wouldn't be many people that wouldn't affect, would there? Oh, no, I think it's it's one of those jobs where you you know, you get that sense that, this is this is big, you know. Even though you don't quite know how big it's going to be, you know that straight away this is this is a big thing because you know Sony's already told us he's been working this for months or years, whatever it was, and he said this this you know this number of similarities we're talking about. You know, he he's been able to match I think you know, four or five people he thought were probably all murdered at that at that point. I don't even think he may have realised just how big it really was. Um, yeah. And the, the weird thing was that I did a, a skeletal recovery in. Uh, just north of Adelaide in 1995, it was. Um, myself and, and another another young, another young lady there that was, we did a skeletal recovery in a sheep paddock, sheep had unearthed a skull, um, mm. and it turned out that he was the very first victim back in 1995, and he never got identified. We never, we never identified the body back then because yeah. one of the possible victims that we were given a list of potential people the, the picture was given to the forensic odontologist at the time 
and said, is this the person? And he looked at the picture and he said, no, he said, it can't be because he's got, from looking at the picture, he's got distinct you know, chips in his front teeth and our skull, our teeth didn't have that. So he said, can't be him. All those years later after Snowtown happened and you realise that this this victim, uh, Clinton Drozice, his name was, his yeah. um, his remains um, were, the, were the first ones. He ran in the same circles and friends as all the other Snowtown victims. He was, I think, living, uh, questionably was in a relationship with Barry Lane, who was a later victim. And he, um, so we, because we couldn't identify him back then, um, yeah, I guess Snowtown continued. Had we identified him back then, had we had more pictures or better dental records, maybe we would have slipped through his ice and then you know, inquiries would have been made with his circle of friends. Some of those people have you know, since become victims. So we would have found probably, we may not have had as many or we might have just stopped Snowtown altogether. Um, but yeah, it didn't happen in 95. So there was at least four years when, when they were running running around doing this sort of stuff. And you, know, and you did say that there was six barrels. Mm-hmm. Um, am I assuming that in those six barrels there were six body parts, uh, six uh, eight. bodies? Eight bodies. Eight bodies. Eight, eight bodies, bodies spread in over six, six barrels, barrels yeah. Okay, but you did say initially that there were 14 uh, victims. Where were the other uh, six? There, well, one, yeah. Right? No, so there's yeah. one, one was uh, one was Clinton's ice back in um, in the sheep paddock. Oh, the 95, the 95 one? Yep, one. yep. Um, yep. There was a couple they found the remains uh, buried under a uh, like a rainwater tank at the back of Salisbury North where one of the victor, one of the offenders had lived in the past. Okay, so there was a couple yeah. more there. Um and there was another one, I think, I can't remember if the body was, because I didn't do these scenes. These were none by people in Adelaide because yeah. I, I still had yeah. my other stuff to get on with and I already had to take a bit of a, a step back a little bit because I was, I'd was given notice I was finishing up. I did say, look, I'll stay on if you want. And they said, no, there's no need for that. And they had enough other people. And of course they did. Yeah. Um, but there was someone had um, at least temporarily put one of the bodies into a, a, a mechanics pit inside a, a domestic garage that sort of stuff, and that was examined. Because some of these, they, they sort of move around a bit. I think they had, as the bodies were starting to sort of mount up, they needed to move, because they were often just rent these places. You know, they were government housing, around, I don't know what, in Queensland here they call it, you know, public, it's public housing, I guess, any any state you live in. So some of these, so when they moved houses, they had to take some of this, some of the bodies with them, apart from on Sorcerer North. So some of this stuff, the bodies got moved around a little bit. One was buried in an acreage property at a place called Hoylton, out towards Port Wakefield again. Um, and that was another exhumed, that was one of the exhumed ones, I think was in the barrels. But the telephone intercepts had detected that they had, um, they had discussions about, I think I've, I think I've got a boat we can use, or I found a boat. And, as well as the six barrels inside the manager's office at the bank, there was six bags of cement, of concrete. So I think the plan was they were going to have a bag of concrete in each barrel. The barrels were going to go onto a boat and they were going to, because uh, they'd been followed to, followed to Port Wakefield, which is a, like a coastal town between Snowtown and Adelaide. Um, and it's a very quiet coastal town um, right on the edge of the, um, there's a, a military firing zone there, a snow-go zone for boats which sort of borders at Port Wakefield. So if you were brave enough and you know, didn't care, and these people were clearly both, they could have just ducked on the boat. They could have gone into the military area, dumped the barrels, and basically nobody would probably ever find them. You'd never actually, they wouldn't actually, unless they float up, they wouldn't accidentally um, 
be discovered, you know, anchor drop or something like that. So I think given that they were followed, one of them was at least followed there, and there was discussions about maybe I've sourced a boat. The six barrels, six bags of concrete, I think you know, we got there before they had a chance to enact the next, next step of their plan, which was probably dump them all at sea. God, I wonder if you hadn't have, um, you know, intercepted this um, uh, investigation, whether they just would have continued because obviously they're getting money from Centrelink and, you know, mm. it's it's all going well. But I was going to say in one sense they weren't actually deals, were they, the offenders? Oh, no. Like, no, they, they, weren't, they yeah. weren't completely stupid. They, I mean, one of them, no. one of them fronted up, uh, I believe, um, at Centrelink for an interview. Because one of these victims had been sent a letter saying, you know, you need to come in and see us for whatever reason. So they've, they've turned up and said, I am, whichever victim it was, you know, I am Narelle Fraser. I'm here to talk to you about my, you know, my, my letter you've sent me. Um, and then Centrelink just did their interview or whatever they did and marked it off. So I, I said right back then, I don't think it's happened yet. My, my, my strong belief back then and still today is that if someone becomes an official missing person, Centrelink or the government benefits should probably just be shut off in the hope that that might yeah. force them to surface somewhere. And if they yeah. want to be want to remain missing, that's okay. But we need to know where these people are because what we've got happening, and this this has happened in other cases you read about, um, where you know, partners and things get killed and they continue to get their pension or you know, whatever it might be, their benefits um, continue on. And we, if we can stop that, we might at least flag earlier earlier that. Um, something's not right with this particular missing person. You know, we've done very well for just having a quick chat about <laughs> Snowtown. But, no, but, but you know, I know exactly what you mean, Gordon, because I can hear, like, those sort of jobs really come along pretty rarely. Mm. And and when they do, it's something that, that you will never, ever forget and I know, you know, with a couple of uh, uh, big investigations that I've been involved in, I could almost, uh, like you, like almost minute by minute, you never forget it, but it's 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 a great feeling in another way to think that you've been part of a team that have solved such a, a huge job. And you've also obviously saved a lot of other people, uh, but, well, being victims, it sounds like they just you know, went from one to the other. Um, but I can hear in your voice, how, oh, this sounds silly, how much you love. that. That's what I miss about being in the police force is just getting those jobs and like you're exhausted, but it's just adrenaline and, uh, oh, it's just, it's a, a great, oh, Listen to me. <laughs> no. it, it's it's wrong, isn't it? Because it's somebody's family, you know, it's somebody's loved one. But just to be able to identify who it is and uh, be involved in that whole thing, oh, God, I miss that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it certainly is a it's a, a contradiction of, of feelings, isn't it? You, you get that uh, real positive, yes, so. I'm doing something great here. But, of course, the, the upshot, the, the positive from all this is that we've now got 14 families and friends, uh, yeah, associates, yeah. that know what happened to their loved one. You know, no one's now left wondering. We've got, I believe, you know, hundreds of people around Australia that are missing people that are never found. They never know what happens to them. But at least with the, in the case of Snowtown, as horrible and horrendous as everything was and the torture that happened and, and the, the, the way that they died is awful, but at least their families know and they've got, you know, they can try to move on as best they can with, with that knowledge that, you know, 
they've been able to bury the, you know, their loved one and, and, and say a proper yes. goodbye. A lot of yes, families don't get do. that. So no, they 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 don't. And uh, so you have been, as you uh, I said in the um, in the beginning in my introduction, like some of the the jobs that you've been involved in. Personally, I would think Snowtown would be. Uh, yeah, that that is up there. But also, you're involved in the 1994 NCA, the National Crime Authority bombing at the um, South Australia Police Headquarters, weren't you? Which at the time, correct me if I'm wrong, but that was one of the first really large scale bombings that Australia had known. Can you tell us a, a bit about that? What an incredible investigation Gordon has just taken us through. It's hard to get your head around, isn't it, the fact that he envisaged just ticking off one more job before heading home, thinking a few photos and he'd, he'd be home for lunch with his wife. <laughs> Eight bodies later, he did finally get home. Uh, it proves just how varied policing can be and how you never know what's around the corner, or in Gordon's case, behind some black plastic sheets. So many of us have been there policing. What starts out as some routine inquiry just gets bigger and bigger by the minute. Uh, Next week, Gordon takes us through another high-profile investigation, and that is into the bombing of the NCA headquarters, the National Crime Authority headquarters in South Australia, where a drug detective lost his life and a solicitor who was sitting across the desk from that uh, detective. He didn't die but had lifelong injuries after a parcel exploded in the detective's lap. The intricate work involved in identifying the offender is just incredible. Due to the bomb exploding on the 12th floor, obviously emergency service vehicles flooded the area. And Gordon tells us of the painstaking work of picking out bits of glass and paper from the wheels of a fire truck parked under the window that exploded and and how all those tiny minuscule pieces of evidence assisted in enabling the offender to be identified. Just amazing work. Uh, Gordon also takes us through the day he had what he calls a, a breakdown of sorts and it certainly sounds like that. But within maybe about 10 days, he was back at work and he never had another incident like it. But he tells of the importance of trusting the professionals and trying what they suggest, because that's why he was able to return to work. Oh, And of course, he had an understanding and supportive workplace and his colleagues who understood and with whom he opened up and shared how he felt. Just an incredible man. Anyway, have a great week and we'll talk next week. As you've probably noticed, we've moved to a new platform called ACAST. I think that's the right expression, I've got no idea. And my previous reviews haven't transferred over. I need reviews. <laughs> Could you do me a favour and put up a review? And thank you so much for your support and patronage. With your help, I can give you that little bit extra. Thanks. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 